stand in your presence. We acknowledge that you have revealed yourself to us through the Son by way of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask you now, Lord, as we come into your presence uh, to learn from Jesus and his words, Lord, would you take the words that are spoken and would you let them go forward in a way that is only miraculous, that can't be done by any one man. Let your word do what only it can do. And Lord, for those who are discouraged in this place coming in this morning, let us walk out with the healing power of God's word in us. For those of us who need to be lifted up, Lord, let us see the Holy Spirit who is present even as I speak in this moment. There's not just two or three that are gathered in your name this morning, Lord. There's hundreds of us here. And now we say, Lord, speak through your Holy Spirit to us. That's our prayer and nothing else. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. <clears throat> Last week, we began to talk about the reality that God is triune, God the Trinity that he is one divine being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that was the, the big line that we wanted to take away, that framework that will take us through the rest of what we're going to do. Who is God? He's triune, and he's one being in three persons. Good, got it. And as I was thinking about last Sunday's sermon, as we kind of dipped our big toes into the deep end, and we talked about Arianism and modalism and all the ways people have gotten it wrong in church history, I started to think about how we can easily as evangelicals fall into one of two categories. There's probably more, uh, but two extremes when it comes to thinking deeply about God and his word. I'll, I'll tell you the first group, which I think is probably most common, is that for some of us, we hear the word theology and we go, isn't theology, isn't that thing uh, where people uh, debate over how many angels can stand on the pennant of a needle? And I have no desire to be a part of a silly conversation like that. And so I want the practical stuff, right? And so uh, that's the person that maybe for years can be in God's church and never moves beyond the milk, you know, Hebrews speaks about this. Uh, they stay with the milk and never move to the solid meat. And so this person keeps always the cookies on the bottom shelf, but never reaches higher for the depth of who God is. And the problem with that person is they have a small God. And when they've got big problems, their small God theology, it isn't able to sustain them through challenging times. I don't want that for us. On the other hand, there's another group, and they're like, let's go deep, yes, please. Um, I probably fit into that group. And there's those of us, maybe it's a temperament type of thing, um, who want to dive into that deep end all the way. And so uh, this person has the tendency to forget that um, knowledge has the ability to puff up, right? Doesn't, doesn't Paul talk about this? And so if this person over here just wants to keep things at the lowest level and doesn't want to go deep, this person goes so deep and forgets that knowledge can puff up. And so this person can be the, the well-actually guy. 
I have a friend of mine, I remember one time um, I was uh, wanting to put something in the microwave and I said, I'm going to go nuke, nuke this food for a minute. And he was a science major, so he had to say, well, actually, it's not nuclear what's happening. And, blah, 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 and he goes on to describe to me what happens in a microwave. And, and I was like, I really don't care what you have to say. And so he's the, well, actually, guy. He divorces the head from the heart. He, he, he treats everybody as guilty until proven innocent. You ever feel like you've had to talk with someone, and as you're talking, you feel like you've got to qualify your words because you just know they're going to get you at a certain point? It's this person. He doesn't just have, and we've said this before, a critical mind. It's good to have that. He's got a critical spirit. And so the point is, it's possible to think deeply about the things of God and yet still be a jerk at the same time, right? It's still possible. We think of people like this. So the question is, how do we avoid this person who only drinks the milk on the one hand, and this person on the other hand who just goes for the solid food, but his character never changes. How do we avoid those two extremes? I came across this quote from L.R. Scarborough. He was the president um, and uh, evangelism chair at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, in the early part of the 19th century, and this is where I went to school, and here's what he says. And he's speaking to preachers here, but I think this applies to all of us. And this is the purpose of theology. Buckle in. This is what he says. He says, Our preachers need to learn what the doctrines were put in God's word for. They were not made to kill people with, nor make people mad with. They were not even made to boast over. God put them in his book that we may give them out to people for soul food, to save people with, and make Christians of a heroic mold. We have handed out our doctrines in some quarters as pitchforks, swords, and sledgehammers. Let us change our manner, our method, and our spirit, and hand out these glorious teachings as the bread of life, the water of salvation, food for souls, medicine, and balm for sick and wounded spirits. As I've watched the news the last couple of days, I'm reminded that uh, the world doesn't need the church to be more divisive. Uh, it needs the, the church to be unified. And so I believe that there's a way that we can have deep thinking about God's word that leads to change of character and humility. If anything, I would argue that the deeper you go into seeing how big God is, the more it should change this thing right here. And the more it should make you go, who am I? He chooses me, and yet he's that big. And so what I'm, I want to remind you once again, I said this like on the third week I was here, I want to remind you once again of what I am trying to do every Sunday I get up in front of you. What I'm trying to do is, I'm going like this, y'all, this is what I've been looking at God's word this week, and I just want you to see how big he is. And if he is this big, he is so capable of speaking into your circumstances once again this week. Th this is who he is. This is who he is. Do you see how big your God is? And we've, we've seen how man gets it wrong in, in trying to, to fit God into man's logic. Arianism, modalism, that's last week. But we want to just look once again at the biblical realities of who he is by gazing at the Godhead. So let's be in awe of him. Turn in your Bible, if you're not already there, to John 14. John 14, 15. And as you're turning there, um, I, I want you to, as we think about God here, I want to start by talking about Star Wars. Now, I am what you would call a Star Wars purist, uh, meaning that there are not nine films to the Star Wars franchise. There are six. 
And the reason why there are six is because there's an arc to the story. Some of you are nodding your head. You know where I'm going here. There's, there's an arc to the story, and it's the Skywalker family drama. It's a soap opera that goes from Anakin Skywalker. He's the chosen one, right? He's the chosen one. And what happens? He, he comes and becomes a Jedi Knight. He ends up falling to the dark side. His, his younger, his son, he has a son and a daughter, and the son ends up fighting the Empire, who ironically his father is also in charge of. And at a certain point in the story, towards the end of the story, Luke ends up winning his father back, and his father fulfills the mission of being the chosen one at the end of the story of defeating the enemy and bringing balance to the force, right? And so there is an arc. The story ends there. And anything else is Disney making money. So I am a snob. I am a purist. I plead guilty. Okay? So you asked me the question, okay, Aaron, which film is the best one? And I would say, well, the best one is obviously, it's got to be episode five. It's got to be The Empire Strikes Back. That is gr it's gritty. It's real. We can debate afterwards if you like. It's, it is five. Okay? Okay. And at a certain point in the film, Luke goes to meet with one master Yoda, and he learns the way of the force. And as he's there learning the way of the force, um, he comes to the realization that his friends need him. So he has to go save his friends, and he's going to take on the enemy. He's going to take on Darth Vader. And as he decides to go, what happens? Yoda, Obi-Wan say, you can't leave. The training's not complete. Don't go. Don't go. They implore him. He gets in his X-wing, takes off, and Obi-Wan says what? He says, that boy is our last hope, right? And then as the shadow goes over Yoda, I won't say it in his voice to embarrass myself, but he says, what? No, there is another, right? Over the last three weeks, we've been looking at Jesus here. He's in, the, he's in a Last Supper meal with his disciples, and he has been telling them about his relationship to his father. And he says, I'm leaving, but let me reveal some things to you before I go. And he reveals his relationship, a divine relationship with his father. But he does something for the first time in human history, is he reveals that there's not only him and the father, but he says, there is another, and here's who he is. Yes, I know how corny that is, but now you won't be able to forget it, okay? There is another. Here he is. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, verse 15, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, and you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you, verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas not Iscariot, so there's another Judas of the 12. It's not the Judas who betrays Jesus. He says to him, to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's the third time he says this. And my father will love him and we will come to make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but it is the Father's who sent me. And so there's, there's really the first thing I want us to look at this morning. It's, this, it's that lovers of Christ obey the commands of Christ. And um, I want to put a statement up on the screen, another one here. So get that down. Lovers of Christ obey the commandments of Christ in his absence. I want to unpack this with you because we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning. But I want you to understand that everything that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is situated within a command. And that is the command that if we love him, we're going to obey him. And so here's, here's how I want to take, the, there's three statements here. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's verse 15. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 21. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If he says it three times, it might be important, right? And so let me give you that big statement here, okay? Love for Christ leads to obedience to Christ and is evidence of the love of Christ. Okay, let's walk through this together. The first part of that, love for Christ leads to obedience to Christ. Do you notice that Jesus is not describing a mere emotion? He is describing something that leads to action. He says, if you love me, it's going to end up showing itself in obedience. How do you know who lovers of Christ are? It's by what they do. The reason why I take time to really get into this is because in our American culture, right, don't we know that it is so easy to call ourselves a Christian? It's easy to call ourselves a Christian. But we have no right to bear that title if we do not do the things that Jesus says. Put it this way. You can't say you love Jesus and be unfaithful to your spouse. You can't say you love Jesus and then be dishonest in your business dealings. You can't say you love Jesus and then be a slanderer of the brethren or of your neighbor. If you obey Jesus, you demonstrate, if you love Jesus, you demonstrate that through obedience. Those who love Christ look like Christ because they obey Christ, okay? And so here's what I would want you to consider, friend, this morning. Perhaps you love the social aspect of church. Perhaps you love singing the songs. Perhaps you enjoy the leadership positions that may come in being a part of the church. But God's word says right here that if you don't love, if you don't love Jesus, you're not going to obey him. But if you obey him, it shows that you love him. You might be a cultural Christian if you have no desire to do the things that he says. So we should obey. So consider the second part of that statement now. So obeying equals loving Christ. The second part is it's evidence of the love of Christ. You see in verse 21, look at that with me. He says, my father, if we obey, my father will love him and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so maybe some of us who are good Protestants in the room, we go immediately, wait a second, you're saying that if I obey God, then he's going to love me? That sounds a little bit like justification by works, right? If you obey, then you're gonna get the love. I thought we went through a whole series in Philippians here, and I thought it was all about God's grace. We couldn't make ourselves right with God, but he loves us and he sent the son for us. I thought that's how it works. And I would say, yes, that's how it works. But are you saying, Aaron, that if I obey, then God will love me? Yes, I am saying that too, but I'll show you what I mean. 
It may not be in the way that you're thinking. In the next passage, we will see next week, Jesus puts it all together. And he says in 15, 16, he says, this is the key. You did not choose me, I chose you. Earlier, Jesus says in John 10, 28, he says that all who belong to Jesus have been given to him by his Father. And so the Father, God who has chosen you, has put you in the hands of his Son so that we would be obedient and God would love us. Consider how helpless that we are. We could do nothing for God to love us, and yet he chose us. Then he calls us to obey him, and we can't obey him on our own strength. He has to give us the Holy Spirit. Then he tells us that if we obey him with the strength of the Holy Spirit, we get more of the triune love of God. God goes behind you and chooses you. God places his Holy Spirit in you so that you would have the ability to obey that you can't do on your own. And God is the object of your obedience leading to him. And he is the end of your obedience. So God's love is behind you, it is in you, and it goes forward. Or maybe we could put it this way, the words, the prayer of St. Patrick. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Do you see? It is the grace of God in which he chooses you. It is the grace of God in which he places his spirit in you. And it is the grace of God through all of that going behind you in you that takes you even more to the love of God that you could have never gotten to on your own. He is before you, he's in you, and he goes before you. Who are we that God would do these things? So does coming to church remind you how inadequate you are? You're a sinner once again. I think it should. I think it should but it should remind you that you have not yet been left alone. There is another, and that's how I know this. Jesus says in verse 16, and I will, give, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And so if the main command, remember the main command is that we are to demonstrate that we love Jesus by obeying him. Jesus says, now let me tell you how you're going to be able to do that with the presence of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth from the Father through the Son forever, okay? Before we begin and get into the Holy Spirit here, I want to acknowledge something. There are so many misconceptions about the Holy Spirit. There's so many extremes here, and we have a tendency to see extremes and want to avoid the conversation altogether. Uh, one scholar puts it this way, Edward Clink. He says, the spirit is generally the most abused person of the Godhead. For he is either underemphasized for fear of abuse or overemphasized for fear of neglect. And yet the entire Christian life can rightly be described as life in the spirit. Okay? You're going to get some people who are going to distort the spirit and they're going to turn the spirit into a genie in the bottle that if you rub him, miracles are going to pop out. And they're going to be just for you so you can live a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. That, that, that you're going to see some people do that. Yet God doesn't promise us prosperity in this life, right? 
And they'll manipulate the Holy Spirit and they'll, and they'll do that. And when we see that, we, wanna, we ought to avoid that. I think that's a good thing. But we ought to not let the pendulum go the other way. And I think the pendulum can go so far the other way where you hear that statement that there are those who believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, right? And the Holy Spirit is missed altogether. And so here's what I want to say. I, I haven't seen... Okay, I had a friend of mine on the first day I was here, I took a picture of the front of the church, the sun was rising, it was beautiful, I'm like gonna start working at Bethesda, that's gonna be great. And I took a picture of the sign, and if you ever never noticed, at the bottom of it, we're called Bethesda, in reference to the water of, of Bethesda where Jesus brings healing. And at the bottom of it, it says, immerse yourself in living waters. And I sent that to one of my charismatic friends, and he goes, Oh, that sounds like a Holy Spirit kind of church. That sounds like my kind of place I want to be at. And I remember thinking, probably not in the way that you're thinking, brother, um, because I, have, I haven't seen anyone pull out the tambourine yet, um, and I haven't seen anybody run the aisles. So if I was a betting man, we're probably not in that first group, but many of us may end up being in that second group of falling into the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures in avoiding the spirit because of the extremes that we see. Let's get the balance right and let's let scripture be our guide. There's a word that Jesus uses. He calls the spirit the paraclete. That's the Greek word there. Um, my ESV Bible says the helper. Your translation may say advocate, comforter, counselor. You see that in there? And you can see there's not really an easy English parallel here. I think for my money, I would probably go with counselor. And that carries the legal connotations of a counselor, while also the deep personal relationships, a relationship of God to us as a counselor. I mean like marriage counselor or camp counselor. I mean more like a legal counselor who helps us. And yet his value is not diminished as he helps and so there's five of these paraclete statements. We're going to look at two of them now in this week. We'll look at the other three in the weeks to come. He is described as the spirit of truth. And that should shock you because we've spent the last two weeks saying, who is the truth? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And yet now here we see that the spirit is also identified as the truth who eternally will be with us. And the point is that the Spirit is no less God than the Son. He shares in the same divine perfections as the Son who is with the Father. Not just the Son, but the Spirit. There's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three divine persons, one God. I have given out to many of you Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Many of you have talked to me about how it's made you see how big God's heart is for you in a new way. Uh, Ortland talks in his book about this passage we're looking at, and he talks about how we must move beyond just the reality of what we read in God's word to the experience of actually encountering these realities in our life. And here's what he says. He says, the spirit does this, the spirit of truth. The spirit makes the heart of Christ real to us, not just heard but seen, not just seen, but felt, not just felt, but enjoyed. Again, he says this. Jesus said that he is gentle and lowly in heart. This is a beautiful statement, and even without the Spirit, one could respect and even marvel at it. 
But the Spirit takes the words of Christ and he interiorizes them at the level of personal individuality. The Spirit turns the recipe into actual taste. I love that. Or if I could use my own words, if I could elaborate. The Holy Spirit takes the recipe of God's word and he changes it, transforms it actually, into the actual taste of Christian experience. What saddens me is that there are many Christians who believe Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and yet their heart has never leapt with joy from encountering the warmth of Christ's love in their life. It's true they believe it, but they've never had an encounter with the living God. And so for many of us, I would ask you, do you really know the Holy Spirit, or have you avoided him because you've seen others abuse him? Don't do that. Don't do that. There's good news this morning for you. It's that regardless of how you may have treated the Holy Spirit, his presence has never left you if you have placed your faith in Christ. He is not going anywhere. And as Ortland says once again, he is ready to turn our postcard apprehensions of Christ and his great heart of longing affection for us into an experience of actually sitting on the beach in a lawn chair, drink in hand, enjoying the actual experience. And so my prayer for you, friend, is that the Holy Spirit would bother you and that he would bother you into having an encounter with Jesus Christ in a fresh way today. So he's the spirit of truth. He makes those truths come alive in our life. And then he tells us he will be with us forever. Just a quick word on that word forever. I think this is another point in favor of eternal security, that we will be with the Lord forever because the Spirit never leaves us. And so for the person who says, man, I think I can fall out of my salvation, I would say the reason why God is going to finish that good work that he started in you is because he's placed the Spirit within you to do that work all the way through to the end of this life and all the way into eternity. The Spirit will not leave you. The Spirit will not forsake you. And he's approached you by grace. And so the Spirit gives us the ability to be lovers of Christ by being obedient to Christ. But then there's more. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you. And yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. And so if he's given us the tool that is the presence of the Holy Spirit, he's given us the assurance even more, just as much, I would say, as the promise of resurrection life through Jesus. Jesus is going to die in less than 12 hours from when he says these words. And yet he's going to rise again from the dead and he's telling you this morning that you are included as well. If anyone loves me, he's gonna keep my word. and My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Let that process through your mind, friend, this morning. Jesus, who has said, I'm going to prepare a place for you at my father's house, is the same one who has said to you this morning, while I go to do that, I'm also going to be the one to make my home right inside of you by way of my Holy Spirit. He is the one who says, he is the one who says this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And we can do that because we have the spirit within us. And so here's how I... I want us to see this, that we would not see God 
as some distant God out there that says, all right, here's your marching orders, church. Now go and figure it out. And then he goes to Gabriel and says, watch those fools trip over themselves when they try to, try to sort themselves out. Watch those guys try to do it. No, he doesn't do that. He tells you that you have everything that you need at your disposal. Man, friend, I know there's a number of us in here who are burdened with so much in our lives, who feel like, man, I don't know what the next few days are, are, are gonna be like, let alone the next few hours. And Jesus is telling you this morning, you've got everything you need through the spirit and the promise of resurrection life to live the Christian life today. So don't think that you gotta do it on your own. Everything that you need for the Christian life is right here in front of you. You have the spirit and you have the promise of resurrection life in the future in which reality you get to live right now. And Jesus says, everything, by the way, I just said to you, I say it on behalf of my dad. Let me say even more, he goes. Here we are. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, second paraclete saying, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All that I have said to you. And so the second thing overall this morning that I think Jesus is saying to us, if he's called us to, to be lovers of Christ, to obey Christ, and he's given us the tools to do that, I think the second thing is he wants us to see that the Spirit he leads the church to understand the truths of Jesus while he's gone. You're not left to figure this out. He not only equips you through his presence, he helps you to understand. I just want to point this out. Do you notice that he says, I love this. He says, I'm, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Three, all three, right there in one sentence. You have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what I want to challenge you to do as you go and read your Bible this week. I'd like to challenge you to start looking for this threefold pattern in Scripture. Or at least you'll see the Father and the Son together. Or you see the Spirit and the Son. That's not by accident. God cares so much about including these things in his word that we ought to pay attention to them. Because it matters that he would reveal himself to you in the right way. And he's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He sends the Spirit to help us understand God's Word. And the whole Trinity works inseparably to do this. The Spirit will teach you all things. All things. Now, uh, two or three years, the first two or three years after I finished graduate school, I found myself saying, um, as I was in ministry, I found myself saying, uh, seminary didn't teach me how to deal with that. Uh, seminary didn't help me with that. Like, um, when you find yourself uh, walking alongside a teenage mother for the first time, or you find yourself walking, walking uh, alongside uh, a young woman whose boyfriend is abusing her, or you find yourself walking alongside uh, someone who is uh, going through church conflict, or you yourself are going through church conflict, you find yourself saying, Seminary didn't teach me how to deal with that. But I came along one pastor who said, that may be true, but if it taught you how to rightly divide the word of truth, you have all that you need. And so if God's word is sufficient, it is capable of speaking into every aspect of your life. You may not have all the answers, but this book gives you the foundation to know how to deal with every single circumstance that comes your way. The Spirit's work, get this, through the Scripture, is sufficient. It's all there. 
There's another key line that he gives about what the Spirit does. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I think this applies to the apostles here. And this is key for us in how we view this book. Have you ever thought about like how the apostles could remember everything that Jesus said? Like if I could read John 14 right now and I went all the way from verse 1 to 31, would you be able to remember everything that I said so that you could write it down? Probably not, right? And then imagine you're sitting next to Jesus and he's saying all of these things. How in the world would you remember what Jesus was saying? There's a recent TV show, and in that TV show, uh, I think it depicts uh, Jesus uh, in, a, in a room with Nicodemus or, or, or some character, and he's talking with Jesus, and Jesus is giving him wisdom. And in the TV show, I think it's one of the disciples is outside the room. He's telling the other disciples, shh, be quiet. And, he, and he's trying to eavesdrop on the conversation so he could write down what he's hearing Jesus said so he could include it in his gospel later. Well, that's an interesting kind of uh, bit of imaginative work, and you can let that sit in your mind. It can stick in your mind. What's the real answer? How do the disciples know what to record? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, it is the Spirit who is going to bring remembrance to you the words that I am saying and what I have taught you. And I think this serves as a warning to us. God has inspired the writers of Scripture exactly what he wanted them to record for us. Nothing more and nothing less. And so when you come across someone who says, I have a new revelation, that ought to be a warning to us. That ought to be a warning to us. Beware of the person who tries to add to God's word by adding new revelation. No, God has given us exactly what he means for us to have this side of heaven through his word as he brought to remembrance what the apostles needed to record. You with me? Last part, here we go. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You may want to underline that. We'll come back to that word. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, but the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise let us go from here. Jesus has said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Jesus has said, I have given you the Holy Spirit to bring understanding to what I am saying. And now he tells us, it's actually good news that I'm leaving because I'm gonna give you my own peace. And it is a better peace than what the world can give. Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world will offer attempts at peace through rulers or personal vices, but it's always going to fall short. There's always going to be more political upheaval. There's always going to be more protests and riots. There's always going to be more personal turmoil that comes in this life. But Jesus is offering his own peace to his disciples. 
And so I want to ask you, just look to the last six days. And I want, to, I want you to think of your last week in your own home. Could you say that your home this week was marked by peace? Or would you say that it was marked by strife? Which one would you say? In your heart of hearts, which, which would you say? If it was marked by strife, turn to Jesus and realize what he does not say. He does not say, if you white knuckle it and claw, your, and claw away at it, I'll then give you my peace. He says, I have left you with my peace. He already gave it to you. It is yours to access by the Holy Spirit. And so I would ask you, if you need his peace, if you need his deliverance from addiction, cry out to him and watch him bring the deliverance. For he is faithful to do what he has promised to do. Turn to him again this morning. Jesus says, look, what I'm about to do, like if you knew what I was all about, you wouldn't be... You wouldn't be in just a depression and sadness. You would be rejoicing because I'm going to my Father. You rejoice at that. I'm accomplishing the mission he, he had for me. I'm going back to my Father. I'm taking your humanity with me. We should rejoice that Jesus has gone to his Father. And yet, you know, he says, for the Father is greater than I. Someone may go, okay, that's the, we've got a problem all of a sudden. We've got a problem. And the problem is, that sounds like Arianism. That sounds like the Father is here and the Son is here. Remember last week I said that every heretic has a verse? This is it for Arius. This is the, this is the, this is the money passage for him. And so he would say, remember Arius was the guy who said, the Father is here, the Son is here. He's more than you and I, but he's less than the Father. The Father is greater than I, is what Arius would, would say. I think if we pan out and remind ourselves, though, of what Philippians 2 says, and we've looked at this before, where Paul says these words, we'll get it. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, who though he was fully God, he does not subtract his divinity. He adds to his divinity his humanity. He condescends by giving and taking on humanity. Augustine says, the form of a slave was added, in fact. The form of God was not subtracted. The son was assumed. The other was not annihilated. On account of his humanity, get it? His humanity, Jesus is saying, the father is greater than I. But on account of his divinity, he is saying, I and the father are one. And so when he says the father is greater than I, he's speaking through his humanity, and he's saying, I am submitting my humanity to the Father to show you an example of obedience as you, as you live this life. And as he says earlier, I and the Father are one. This is the mystery. He can simultaneously say, I am less than the Father in his humanity, and yet he can say, I and the Father are one in his divinity. It's an incredible mystery that God gives us. And as he departs, he then says, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Consider these, this thought here. I want you to imagine, as we close, I want you to imagine the devil walks in through the back door. We're in a courtroom. And he comes to the front and he goes and stands behind the prosecuting attorney's table. Jesus is already standing behind the defense table. 
devil, he takes his briefcase and he opens it up, clicks it open, and he pulls out papers and he begins to say his opening remarks to the jury. And he lifts up his hand and he begins to speak, but before he can even say a word, the one who is the defendant moves from the defendant's chair and he comes and stands behind the judge's desk and he sits down. And before the devil can say a word, Jesus says, you have nothing on me. Case closed. The devil may have the first word, accusation, but Christ has the last word, to tell us die. It is finished. He is the spotless lamb without sin who has stood in our place and he has risen and yet we are included. And Jesus says, all of this is about to take place. All of this is going to take place and when it does, I'm telling you now so that you would believe. They would see this all happen within the next few hours and in the coming days. You and I get to look back 2,000 years later and we look at the whole message of John's book and we see what Jesus has done and we fulfill the message of John's book when we see what Christ has done when we believe. And so let us believe today, friends. Let us believe that Jesus is actually who he says he is, that he's given us the spirit, that he's given us resurrection life to obey him and love him. We have all that we need this week. Or if I could put it another way, as the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. We have all that we need in him. So let's go and obey, if that's true. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.